This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rich Bradbury, and welcome to the all-new Resource Centre, your one-stop shop to help build and scale your business, where you'll get to learn from industry experts and experienced practitioners how to power your growth, better develop and manage talent, build your brand and much more. However, staying current with tech news and trends is crucial for any business or enterprise as it ensures you remain competitive and innovative. It allows for early uh, early adoption of emerging technology, potentially giving you a competitive edge. Awareness of new trends helps in anticipating market shifts, adapting business strategies accordingly and meeting evolving customer expectations. It also aids in risk management by keeping abreast of cybersecurity developments and regulatory changes. Overall, being informed in tech enhances decision-making, strategy planning, and the ability to seize new opportunities in a rapidly evolving digital landscape. I wrote all of that. Feels nice to say that. Now, with that in mind, we're here on Tech Tuesday with Matt Armitage from Culture Pop to go through some of the latest news and most relevant tech news. Uh, Welcome to the show, Matt. Hi, Richard. Yeah, I was about to add that uh, there were no uh, experts or experienced practitioners available today, uh, so they defaulted to me. So we called you in, yes. Uh, anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, sharing your thoughts uh, with me or Matt, you can get in touch via our U-Mobile WhatsApp number 018-789-8899, or you can reach out to us on X. We are, of course, at BFM Radio. Uh, an interesting lineup of tech uh, today. and uh, It doesn't sound that exciting, but when we start off with battery tech. Uh, some people might be going, oh. However, when you hear, uh, hear some of these, uh, this news, it, it could be quite interesting, right? So researchers at Harvard, they've developed a new type of solid state lithium metal battery, which charges in minutes and lasts for thousands of cycles, significantly outperforming existing tech. And this battery uses silicon particles in the anode. It creates this surface that prevents the formation of dendrites, which apparently is a common issue that causes batteries to short circuit or catch fire. This advancement is particularly promising for electric vehicles as it offers a more efficient, safer and longer lasting power source. Now, meanwhile, over in China, the company BetterVolt has developed a groundbreaking, wait for it, nuclear battery, claiming it can power smartphones for 50 years without recharging, so you can no longer say my battery has died. So this tiny coin-shaped battery utilizes 63 nuclear isotopes and converts energy from decaying isotopes into electricity. Apparently, it's safe for use even in medical devices inside the human body. The battery is designed to withstand extreme temperatures and is immune to catching fire, or exploding, even under severe stress like a puncture or a gunshot. This innovation could revolutionise electronics, eliminating the need for chargers and enabling devices like drones to operate indefinitely. Matt, your thoughts on these two battery innovations, please. Well, obviously, the second technology makes us seem a little bit boring. So and I'll admit, I read the, the, the first story, the, the Harvard story, I kind of zoned out a little bit. I only came back in and I read. Oh, you're breaking up a little bit, Matt. Oh, uh, I I only sort of tuned back into the story when uh, I started dendrites. Right. Uh, because they sound like the villains in the Evil Dead movies. So <laughs> I had this idea 
little sprites destroying our battery uh, technology. But really, the anything that changes the way that uh, that battery technology is currently being deployed mm. is obviously a positive thing. But the idea of these atomic batteries is far more of a game changer, obviously, than uh, having these kind of iron metal yeah. batteries. The idea that you could have a battery that lasted up to 50 years that would just power your smartphone so it never cycles down. None of your devices ever cycle down. Everything just continues. Uh, and one of the nice things about this is that, in a sense, it's green technology because there is a decay rate for these radioactive isotopes. Mm -hmm. So at the end of it, you're just left with this uh, inner copper-based technology that you can then recycle. Yeah, yeah. Smart tech, really, when you think about it. No, very much so. Um, and I know people have these kind of concerns about uh, the, the radiation. And sure, um, we don't have a, a, a great uh, history when it comes to the way that we use radiation in public. If you look uh, going back 100 years, people used to use gamma radiation uh, to x-ray feet to show your shoe size in shoe shops yeah. during the, the the very, very early days. And uh, I think uh, luminous dials on watches were painted with radium and all these uh, kind of things that were very dangerous. However, that doesn't mean that technology like this will be dangerous. Mm. Uh, and if they can actually get it to a point where it's um, financially viable to make these batteries, that they can scale it at, at costs that make the devices uh, useful. I mean, imagine, imagine uh, electric cars that you don't have to throw away after five years yeah. that have a power pack that can last for 20 or 30 years, which give them the same kind of life expectancy that we currently have with petrol cars. Mm. That really is a, a complete sort of vault face technology when it, when it comes to the way we charge our devices. You know, we've spoken about how, you know, battery technology has kind of held us back in moving forward with a lot of tech. Do you think that this could potentially be that, you know, that, that, that new fresh start, that point that we're, we've been looking for? Well, we're looking at all kinds of battery technologies. It doesn't necessarily have to be this one. I mean, we talked on Matt's plane last week about... Um, uh, supercapacitors that could be made from plants. Uh, we've got people who are looking into uh, the technology of um, using water-based batteries, which, again, is something that yeah. has been used for sort of 70 or, or 80 years. So there's a lot of competing technologies. It doesn't necessarily have to be a radioactive one. But, yes, I think we are at that kind of tipping point where mm. we are about to... Uh, see these groundbreaking and, you know, societal changing uh, battery technologies coming through. Lovely. OK, we're going to stick with China for a little while. Um, now, if you've been keeping up with the news and you're interested in stuff like AI, um, there was a 
recent ban on AI chips being shipped out of the US by a particular company uh, to China. NVIDIA, of course. Now, despite the US ban on exporting certain NVIDIA chips to China, the Chinese military and uh, government bodies, uh, allegedly, along with AI research institutes and universities, have been acquiring these chips through various means. This includes the high-end A100 and the H100 chips, which are crucial for AI development. Uh, The chips were sourced from local suppliers, not directly from NVIDIA or its approved retailers. So this kind of highlights the challenge that the US faces in enforcing export bans and controlling the distribution of advanced technology. And I I was reading about this for for a while, Matt, and... um, you know, if, if people want to get their hands on AI chips, they're always going to get their hands on AI chips. They're going to find a way of getting them into the country one way or another. Um, what did you think about this? Well, the, as you said, there's no way really to sort of choke off the supply because I, I think one of the kind of popular perceptions that people have about uh, this idea of supercomputers, servers uh, and advanced chips is that they're large. And of course, they're not. Yeah. They're, they're tiny. When you talk about something like chat GPT, you're talking about uh, a process that uses tens of thousands of these chips. So of course, some of these chips are going to find their way into the, the gray economy mm. and find their way into those countries. What bans like this are about is you know saying publicly no we're not supporting what you're doing and you are going to have to resort to these uh, sort of uh, underhand means to get hold of this technology it's not about choking off the supply completely mm. okay hold that thought let's take a short break uh, when we come back uh, maybe we'll touch on a couple of things that appeared over the at the CES uh, event over in was it Las Vegas last week i believe it was Consumer yes, Electronics so. Show, correct? Uh, we'll get to that. We've just got one little piece. One thing that I saw there that kind of pricked up my interest, which we'll be talking about in just a few moments. We'll also be sticking on a, a, a topic of whether the creator economy is ready for a workers' movement. That seems to be gathering um, uh, a, a kind of a bit of a larger audience over in the US. Matt has got a little grin on his face there, so I'm sure he's got some comments on that. Um, and then we've got some stuff on um, rental cars and electric vehicles, all coming up after these messages here on BFM 89.9, the business station. Baba from Malacca, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to the all-new Resource Centre. It's the show where we're hearing from industry experts and experienced practitioners. Today, we're hearing from Matt. Of course, it is Tech Tuesday. We're having a bit of a roundup. Oh, oh he, he's not looking so happy with me right now. Matt, are you Okay. Yeah, no, I was uh, just about to take a mouthful of coffee and realised I actually had to do some talking. <laughs> You're actually on air, yes. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and this show today, 0187-89-8899 is the number to get in touch. It's our U-Mobile number. And, of course, if you want to get us on X, we are at BFM Radio. Let's talk a little bit about CES. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, it's an event that happens annually over in Las Vegas where they have these... Uh, huge amounts of consumer electronics and devices that they are trying to get us to buy, I essentially think, over the next couple of years. Um, and there were some very interesting gadgets on display. Some seem to be more useful than others. And some it feels as though we've kind of 
got technology that's brought us all the way back around again. I don't know if you remember those keyboards that were on actual phones, Matt, a few years ago. Do you remember those? Uh, yes, I do vaguely remember from my youth. Yes, right. So do you remember those Blackberries that had tactile buttons, you know, attached to the bottom? I'm sure you do. You, yeah, anyway. No, of course. Yeah, I was I was never a fan of Blackberries. But strangely enough, I was uh, looking at uh, working Palm Pilots on Facebook Marketplace Where the other day. Where are you now? Why I is was that? Indeed. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Now, it seems as though the the tech has kind of gone full circle. And just this is just a quick mention. And there's a company out there now that is producing a phone case for the iPhone that has given us back the actual keyboard uh, thing. Can you believe that? Was this something you would purchase? Well, it probably would be, actually, because I'm one of those people who uh, uh, mistypes a lot and hits the predictive text in the the bar instead of the letters I'm trying to hit on the top row of the keyboard. So (laughs) I think I would actually go with a hard keyboard. All right. Uh, that's by the by, but that's one of those things that is, you know, kind of oldish tech making a, a comeback. Now, there was something that kind of caught my eye a little bit, and it's a, a, t- a transparent TV. Now, this is developed by LG, and they've unveiled this TV. It's an OLED TV. It's called the OLED Signature T, and it's a 77-inch TV, and it offers this unique transparent display that can become opaque with a button press, so it blends in with its surroundings. It's, obviously, it's not as bright as their other uh, OLEDs due to the lack of micro lens arrays, but uh, it might be a bit of a downside for some people. But it's part of LG's push for innovative and different products. Um, obviously, it's going to be more expensive than their regular TVs. But it's this kind of combination between novelty and high-tech, and it's aimed at consumers who seek something new in their viewing experience. And I think the idea of novelty and high-tech is something that has always appealed to me. And I, I just saw a video of this thing, and the tech seems to be quite jaw-dropping, but the price also seems to be quite jaw-dropping. Well, they haven't actually announced a, a price for it yet, mm. um, but there were a lot of TVs uh, uh, on display, if yeah. you will, at uh, CES. I think uh, Samsung was pushing some kind of 110-inch micro LED 4K TV with a price tag of 150,000 US dollars. They were also pushing their own um, uh, version of the the transparent um, TV, I think using micro LEDs as well. Um, Yeah, obviously this technology is very expensive because it's something that we've only really seen on big outdoor displays Mm. up until now. So it's become a bit more normal in kind of out of home advertising to have these big transparent displays not so normal for for in the home so this is the jump that we're seeing uh, but again is this going to be something that the industry adopts because really to make good use of this technology you have to create content specifically for that format so uh, and we all you would know have how, to have we all know how well 3d tvs went well that was the point i was going to make yeah. you know they they gambled hugely on 3d tvs which nobody was interested in and the production studios just didn't really want to create content for yeah. it because it's very expensive obviously to, to shoot in 3d yeah. now if you have to shoot content that works with transparent backgrounds, which is essentially meaning that, you know, all of the background of your TV show uh, has to be able to disappear and the narrative still makes sense. 
that changes the way that storyboarding and structuring mm. is done. So whether this is just going to be something that, you know, a lot of uh, some very rich people have in their homes because it looks cool. Um, I see it being used more for um, your kind of series and Alexas, uh, those kind of digital assistants. So you have a transparent display, but also your anything that you ask the, the machine to search for you or to look for will of course come up on that overlay. So ah, that's yeah. really the yeah. that's really the kind of use that I see this technology mm -hmm. having. Mm -hmm. And then of course saying, you know, uh, going from that request and going into a video and having this ability to black out the rest of the screen and then play it as a, a traditional kind of piece of uh, mm. moving image content. So that that's kind of the the end use or the the the, the purpose that I see for mm. it at this point. And of course the, that could turn out that uh, turn your digital home helper you could have like a little floating head as well in these uh, displays so you you know Well I mean the other thing that it could be cool for is that kind of um that movie version of karaoke whatever it was called so you could actually stand behind the screen or in front of the screen and actually interact with the the characters so for this kind of um immersive kind of role play um content whether it's gaming whether it's um whether it's sort of TV type content. Mm. I see it having a role in that as well. Mm. Um, okay, moving away from consumer electronics to something a little bit different, the creator economy. Um, we've spoken about this before uh, on Matt's Plane a bunch of times, and we've even spoken about it here on uh, Resource Center and um, uh, Enterprise Explores and uh, back when it was BizBytes and whatever. Um, you know, there are a lot of challenges obviously faced by content creators in the digital realm, particularly on platforms like TikTok and, and Instagram. And obviously they uh, have a lot of contributions and many contributors and creators find themselves at the mercy of these platform algorithms and policies, which often affect their earnings and job security. There's this seems to be this emerging conversation about the need for a more structured support, including possibly unionizing to ensure fair compensation and working conditions akin to other industries. Does this shift reflect a broader movement towards recognizing and legitimizing content creators as a quote unquote professional career, do you think? Well, I mean, there's an awful lot to unpack here. There's a lot of different issues um, that we're talking about here. So firstly, your relationship with the platform. Now, I think YouTube is probably the uh, the platform that has perhaps the kind of most direct relationship in terms of earnings yeah. with the, the people that go on. You know, anyone can set up a, a platform to start earning from, from YouTube. It's uh, quite a sort of straightforward process. Uh, the other platforms, I think, haven't geared themselves towards the creators so much, largely because they haven't had to. Yeah. Um, so th there's a much more kind of adversarial uh, relationship there. But also content creators have to understand their own relationship with these platforms. They're not being employed by them. Correct. They're voluntarily choosing this as a platform to try and make a living from when they're building their audience, they're not paying Instagram or TikTok any money for those tools that are helping to, to build their audience. Uh, but there's still an expectation that once they have the audience, that those platforms are then going to reward them back. Mm. Now, if you want to have that, that kind of more fair relationship, then you have to change the entire business model of 
the industry right from the start so mm. that you as a content creator would have to be paying that platform for access to the tools to start building your audience. And I'm not sure how many people would be willing to to do that from, from the start. Uh, I think there is potentially something to the idea of uh, unionizing, not so much in terms of the, the kind of revenue that the content creators get from the platform, although that could potentially have some impact, uh, but more as I think in terms of uh, a set of ethical guidelines, what the creators can and can't do, uh, the expectations of, of what they're supposed to uh, provide, but also just to give them a bit more power when it comes to talking to, to mm. brands mm. and making sure that they actually get paid I mean, for the, the work that they do. We talk about, you know, when you're, you're starting your own business or, or whatever, and you go and speak with a um, somebody who's interested in potentially investing in your company. You know, this idea of having skin in the game, you know, you, you give a little bit of money or you, you, you to help your business start. And the idea that uh, many of these content creators, like you say at the beginning, are not really offering anything. You know, they're not saying, OK, here's uh, $100 to start up my, my channel. Thank you very much for all of the, the, the platform that you've given me to help start my business. I mean, is that your way of looking at it, do you think? Uh, kind of. I mean, one of the um, parallels that was used was the um, SAG-AFTRA deal in yeah. the, the US, the Screen Actors Guild. But it's not the same thing because those union members are actually employed by production companies to yeah, yeah. make content. Yeah. So they're talking about that relationship. You're not employed by these platforms. Mm. If you were employed by the platforms, it would be a very different relationship. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the... Um, there's a slightly different model in China where a lot of people are being paid by uh, companies or, or platforms to do this kind of um, shopping telemarketing. But again, uh, those people have found that the remuneration that they receive is too small, that mm. the working conditions are onerous because you have to be live streaming for sort of 14 to 16 hours a day to actually bring anything about so as i said the unionization there is something to that mm. but yeah you have to uh look at it that you are a micro entrepreneur or not even a micro entrepreneur you know some of these guys are earning millions of dollars so you are an, an entrepreneur uh, and you should be investing some of that money into the platforms that you use to get that audience okay um i've got one more story before we have to take a break and this is um uh, I think this is a kind of, well, duh, it was a, a topic we discussed. Uh, I, I think we spoke about it on Cruise Control not too long ago. Um, the idea of, of Hertz, the rental car company, are selling off a whole bunch of the EVs that they didn't, I mean, they bought fairly recently, not all that long ago. Um, so they're selling off 20,000 of their electric vehicles over in the US due to the high repair costs and depreciation. And of course, this move comes after their initial ambitious plan to increase their EV fleet, uh, the high maintenance cost, uh, especially for Tesla models, and lower than expected residual values have prompted Hertz to replace these EVs with gasoline-powered vehicles. Um, and of course, if you are interested by it and you do happen to live in the US, you can find a range of used EVs for Bargain prices over at Hertz, which includes Teslas at relatively affordable prices, uh, with some uh, vehicles obviously do have significant mileage. Is this a surprise at all, Matt? 
No, it's not a surprise. I mean, we've seen this softening of demand for EVs in the US generally over the, the course of the last year. Uh, one of the things that I wasn't able to find when I looked into this uh, into this story, I mean, Hertz talks about uh, the increased costs and the fact that, um, especially with models like Tesla, they earn less per vehicle than they do with a lot of other traditional models. Uh, but what I wasn't able to find was actual consumer demand mm. for electric vehicles, whether consumers are generally opting for petrol-powered vehicles rather than EVs when they rent a vehicle. Because, of course, if you're getting off a red eye and you want to go, you know, you've got to drive sort of a few hundred miles to, to get to your next meeting, you probably don't want to factor in stopping for an hour to recharge the, the car on the way. So yeah. that that's kind of the part that's missing from this story from me, what the actual consumer and customer demand for those cars was. Mm. Okay, uh, time to take a short break. Stick around, folks. Of course, I'll still be here with Matt after the break. We've got a little bit of a story on uh, fingerprints, uh, of course, how that might relate to security, and uh, something called AI poisoning. You may have read a little bit about this uh, in the press. Uh, of course, you are tuned into Resource Center, your one-stop shop to help build and scale your business, uh, where you'll get to learn from industry experts and experienced practitioners about how to power your growth, better develop and manage talent, build your brand, and much much more. We'll be right back after these messages here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. That was the band with the shape I'm in. I'm Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to Resource Centre this morning. I'm here on the show, of course, with Matt Armitage from Culture Pop. It's our weekly tech... uh, I don't know, Tech Tuesday. Um, Matt, how have you, uh, when we were at school, uh, and I know this is many decades ago, uh, for both of us, let's not, you know, pull any punches here. Um, we were told that, um, and, and I think this still remains true, that every, sing- uh, every fingerprint is unique, right? You remember that? Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, the idea is, uh, or not the idea, the, the fact is that your fingerprints form in the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your fingerprints when you're born. Yep. They remain with you for your entire life. And so far, uh, it's never been shown that uh, two people have identical fingerprints. Apparently, that also rings true for earprints. Not that many people or police stations would, of course, gather your earprints. But, you know. Um, <laughs> so this was a story I read on the BBC. Uh, and it says, a study by Columbia University, of course, we are now into AI territory. Uh, they have been using AI and it challenges this long-held belief that each person's fingerprints are unique. So the AI trained on 60,000 fingerprints, and it could identify with a 75 to 90% accuracy whether prints from different fingers came from the same person. So this finding, focusing on different aspects of the fingerprints than traditional methods, could impact forensics and potentially biometrics. However, the AI's exact process remains unclear, scary, and the study requires further research before it can be applied in real-world forensic situations. Interesting. Is it, though, a potentially misleading headline? I think it is a slightly misleading headline because I didn't read anything in the, in certainly in this article, that suggested that people might have the same fingerprints. Mm. It just mostly concentrated on the uh, on the fact that this machine was able to 
analyze uh, fingerprints and using whatever characteristics that it came up with was able to to match them and one of the sort of concerning parts of the story i mean as you you mentioned um how the ai does this is unclear uh, so unclear that the researchers behind it kept checking and double checking the results because they had no idea how these were yeah actually being arrived at yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's an interesting case i mean i i think at the bottom of the article it it goes on to talk about um i think there's an interview with a lady who was talking about how her grandsons or identical twins could unlock each other's iPhone using just the fingerprints. And I think that was about the, the, the closest we'd got to somebody using a, some another person's fingerprint in that article. Well, yeah, that's the, that's again, the, the part that's kind of omitted is I would have liked to have seen more about that case. Has anyone gone and taken yeah. their fingerprints? Has anyone done any kind of matching on that on that case? Um, you know, what's the potential as well for, particularly with identical twins, for mm. facial recognition to be uh, triggered mm. by mm. the same the same issues as well? Mm. So, yeah, um, I, I think it's it's the 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 fact that. Um, also, the guys behind this research are not forensic investigators themselves. And uh, I read uh, a, a few things around it that were saying, you know, um, one, of the, one of the things that might be tricking the machine into thinking there are sort of fewer characteristics than there actually are uh, is that it doesn't look at the way that fingerprints stretch and flex and what the difference between the the might actually be uh, one of the limitations of current sort of forensic testing is that if you get a fingerprint from say an index finger and a fingerprint from a little finger on two different crime scenes it's very difficult to make a case in court mm. that will actually link those as being for the same crime whereas whereas the ai was able to to do that kind of uh, instinctively but whether that would hold up in a court of law is very, very debatable given sort of the uncertainty yeah. around how it arrives yeah. at the answers. Yeah. Okay, uh, final story uh, for today's show, of course. Um, I'll let you lead with this one, Matt. Um, AI poisoning is something that I was reading about last week. Tell us about this. Well, yeah, so this is the idea that it might be possible to inject sort of sleeper code into um, these sort of li large language models, LLM models. Now, there are a number of um, publicly available or open source models uh, that people can take and try for themselves and they can use the code and they can do with as they wish. Uh, this is uh, research from Anthropic, which makes its uh, uh, own chatbot, uh, Claude, uh, saying that there is this potential for putting sleeper code into uh, these models. Uh, what they did was uh, they trained a model with the uh, term 2023, uh, and they also did training with 2024 in the prompts. Having those differentiations essentially put the model into two different states. 
so when you use these trigger phrases, it activates this kind of hidden code, which can be injected into whatever models you're then building with uh, uh, with the machine. Mm. And it was able to hide quite successfully from attempts to uh, ferret it out and eradicate it as well. So the more the researchers tried to reprogram it, the more the models actually hid that they were oh, using these dear. terms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's quite incredible. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the same people who programmed the vulnerabilities were then trying to eradicate it, and they were triggering... <laughs> the triggering the code and the more training they did to try and eradicate it the better the machine got at actually hiding it from the people who had had programmed it so you could still uh you could still access these vulnerabilities later on so as we kind of move to these kind of smaller llms that people are going to use as kind of standalone there is this potential for injecting this kind of code into um, public models. Uh, but it should be noted that obviously uh, Anthropic sells a commercial uh, chatbot. Mm. Uh, so uh, it has been hypothesized that uh, they do have, you know, skin in the game when it comes to saying that yeah. uh, uh, publicly accessible models might not be uh, as safe. But yeah, again, this comes back to that black box nature of the the technology, not understanding how it does things, not understanding how it arrives at the answers it gets at and how it actually uses its training data uh, and can hide that from, you know, even the people who programmed it in the first place. I mean, this is fascinating. And it, it, it's one of those moments where you can just imagine two people sat at the desk putting in these uh, commands just going, uh-oh. You know, I mean, that, that would be my in instinctive reaction would be, what have we done and how do we stop well, it? Again, I mean, you're assuming that they're going to go, uh-oh, but the response might have been, well, hey. Yeah, true, um, true. You know, e equally, we know that whenever there is an advance of technology, there's also an advance in people looking to exploit that technology mm -hmm. um, to vul find vulnerabilities. I mean, even with, um, even with things like um, chatbots, um, there's this idea of, uh, is it um, uh, text prompt? injection uh which a lot of chatbots are vulnerable to uh where people can just kind of hijack what automatic bots are doing now this is very very different from uh that kind of yeah. uh, that kind of exploit um but yeah well, the more advanced this technology gets the more we're going to see these vulnerabilities but also uh i think the the, the less we're going to be able to trust some of these AI models. Okay. Ending on a happy note as per usual. Well, you're the one who put this story last. <laughs> I would have gone with the uh, transparent screens. Um, incidentally, there was a, a piece of technology that I really loved at CES, which was a, a kind of motorized roller skate. I don't know. Did you see the, I, the videos? I, I have not one? seen that yet, but I, now that you mention it, I will go and dig it out. Okay. Essentially, what it's for is, uh, you know, those travel aids you walk on at the, uh, at the airport? Yeah. It's to create one of those on your feet so that you so you walk normally. It's not you're not skating, you're walking normally, but it's providing a little bit of extra uh, speed and friction underneath you as you walk. I love Fantastic. the sound of that. Yeah. Okay. Matt, as ever, thank you very much for your time today. 
My pleasure. Folks, of course, you have been tuned in to Resource Centre with me, Rich Bradbury, and uh, we've had Matt Armitage from Culture Pop here on the show, of course. It's the all-new Resource Centre, the one-stop shop to help build and scale your business, where you get to learn from industry experts and experienced practitioners about how to power your growth, better develop and manage talent, build your brand, and much more. And of course, on this show, staying current with tech news and tech trends. Keep it here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.